0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This is When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. to Parter this week as we look at Alan Durbin's ultimately doomed efforts in the early 80s to help Sunderland's then young side realise its immense promise. David Snowden, author of Give Us Tomorrow Now, which sounds like the title of a Bond film, is the go-to authority on Alan Durban's Sunderland tenure. His 2018 book looked at Durban's arrival at Roker Park in the summer of 81 and his attempt at waking one of English football's eternal sleeping giants. Durban, a title winner with Derby under Brian Clough and a future guest on this podcast, gave up his secure managerial post with Stoke City for the North East. And in this first part of our interview, David Snowden tells us about Durban's battle to lay down the foundations of future success in his opening season, the 1981-82 campaign, as the boardroom grew impatient with both manager and chairman. Here's David Snowden. It's the summer of 81. Tell us what kind of manager Sunderland were getting and a little about the job Alan Durbin had done at Stoke.
1: Well, Alan Durbin had done a, a tremendous job at Stoke. He grabbed them by the scruff of the neck when they were, they come down from the uh, first division in 76, 77, been relegated, but they they weren't really mounting a, a promotion challenge and they'd just been dumped out of the FA Cup by uh, non league life Spartans so under um, came in, he instilled I think, some discipline and uh, got a nice blend of youth and experience uh, going um, achieved promotion in his first full season which was 78-79 and a lot of Sunderland supporters will remember that very well because Stoke uh, City were one of the, main promotional rivals with Sunderland, and they picked them on the last day of the season. I think uh, Stoke, from memory, won away from home on nil, uh, while Sunderland were doing uh, tremendously to win 2-1 at Wrexham, but it was to no avail for Sunderland fans. So he's gone up with Stoke. He's established Stoke in the top flight, The usual word is consolidation, which he well and truly um, achieved. And I think he was appreciated to a point, but he felt, I think, he did feel comfortable working with the Stoke hierarchy. Um, He had a good relationship with their chairman and board of directors. But being comfortable and settling for what you have... Wasn't really in Alan Durbin's character, his genetic makeup. He's a sportsman through and through. He likes a challenge and he wanted to push himself. Um, and he's still, at this point, only 39 years old, still ambitious to achieve what many others had failed to in the past, not achieved success at the Northeast hotbed. And he'd been impressed by things that. The likes of Bobby Robson, Brian Clough, sort of these managerial almost greats um, had said about the northeast. Bobby Robson had recently turned down the, the manager job at Manchester United and hadn't really had much doubt about that decision. But when Sunderland made overtures to him, which didn't get very far, he, he had mentioned that he wavered. He hadn't wavered over rejecting the Manchester United job. But he had wavered when offered the Sunland job, and that struck a chord with Alan Durban too. When you say what type of manager was Sunland getting, the type that was appealing to the Sunland board and chairman was his frugality, his ability to achieve relative success with the minimum of outlay. And as far as I'm concerned, with the Sunderland Board of Directors and Chairman, the word minimum is uh, it's crucial.
0: How much of that Sunderland frugality was influenced by their experience in the 50s, the whole Bank of England club thing and, and maybe the lack of success that came with that?
1: My opinion would be no, it, it, it wouldn't. I think what is... Um, was more of an influence on, on the current incumbent in the board and the chairman, was the more immediate record, that of Ken Knighton. Ken Knighton had had some initial success with his transfer out and there were some exciting signings for the Sunderland supporters, swoops for established first division players like John Hawley. Stan Cummins. perhaps wasn't a Middlesbrough regular, but he was a semi-regular. And Pop Robson had been brought back. Was a crowd favourite uh, from West Ham United. Chris Turner had come from Sheffield Wednesday. And these were, principally, they were, they were sound signings and they were and they were successful signings. But, unfortunately, Knighton, as far as um, I'm sure um, the, the Sunderland uh, board were concerned, blocked his copy book with the outlay on Claudio Marangoni from the Argentinian player, £325,000 from San Lorenzo. He didn't really adjust, but he wasn't given the time. I think there was uh, impatience was expressed and Knighton had to, well, really had to offload him in order to save um, paying out the remainder of the transfer fee. But what is ironic, uh, I think, is that someone had been promoted, they were looking to strengthen the squad, and perhaps because of the Marangoni era, in inverted commas, and whether it would have proven her in the long term is another matter. Uh, Knighton was only backed with £150,000 in the summer of um, 1980 um, to to spend on Sam Allardyce. And and essentially, Allardyce was mainly, I say mainly, he was a replacement for the injured Jeff Clark, who was a long-term injury victim. Knighton was not given... The five hundred thousand pounds he was um, hoping to spend on Manchester City striker, era international Mick Robinson, because uh, and he, he went to Alan Mulder's Brighton, but that is primarily, I think, because Knighton was not given the five hundred thousand pounds to complete that signing. Now I'm, I'm using the word ironic, because in the January of that se- of the following season, January eighty one, Knighton is then permitted to go out and spend almost a sum of £500,000 to get two players, Um, Igan Boyer from Nottingham Forest, which did seem an exciting signing at the time, and Tom Ritchie from Bristol City. Bristol City were then in the third division, which was less exciting signing for for the Roker supporters. Neither of those buys proved successful. And that I believe that rather than the 1950s events playing a role in the frugality or the reluctance to give the manager money to spend, I would say it was more to do with the, the immediate um, season with, uh, with Knighton's record.
0: Knighton was a bit younger than Durban. He brought Sunderland up in 1980. He was regarded as a young, progressive manager. What had the football been like during his reign?
1: Well, one word would be attacking on a less complimentary tone, perhaps naivety. Sometimes the attacking element was at the expense of the defensive side. But it worked uh, to an extent in getting promotion in in the first season. And and there were some exciting times with um, a forward line of, well, Hawley before he succumbed to injury. Um, they had Pearce with Alan Brown. They had Pop Robson, who was a superb player. Um, Stan Cummins came in. He he was a very attacking player. Even the midfielders, um, Kevin Arnott was a player with great vision. They spent uh, quite a, a record at the time for £135,000 for a fullback, a third division fullback, and Joe Hinnigan, Now from Wigan Athletic. Now he was a very attacking fullback. And they took this philosophy into the, on the return to the top flight. And initially, they, I think they had some good results. They were still exciting to watch. A big error, in, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, was that Pop Robson was, I wouldn't say he was discarded, but he, stuck, he was used on the bench initially. And Ken Knighton went with Alan Brown's pace for both um pop Robson's penalty area nouse and general influence and I think that was a that was a big error and eventually pop Robson was released and it's ironic the number of years he had producing the goods after Knight released him midway through um, season
0: 80-81 So the summer of eighty one Alan Durbin is in Barbados on a tour with the Stokes squad. He'd led to a surprise finish in the Uh, top half of the old First Division and he's mulling over an offer to take over at Sunderland. Was he the outstanding candidate for the job?
1: There were, to use an expression, the usual suspects whenever the Sunderland job hovered into view or became vacant. And some of them often coincide with with those candidates when um, Newcastle United's vacancy became available. So we had Bobby Robson, Laurie McMennan, you know, the one with Sunderland was obviously Brian Clough. But I think the time had long since passed when when Clough would have been interested. And Sunderland had, I think, twice missed the opportunity to appoint Clough. Um, And obviously that that was ruled by many Sunderland supporters. But Alan Durbin was mentioned fairly early on after the, the biggest names, Bobby Robson and And Brian Clough had more or less said that they were non-starters. But Alan Turban was still viewed, I think, by many Sunderland supporters as not an undesirable target, but um, slightly unrealistic in the sense that he was an established top flight manager, still in work, and it it seemed unlikely that he would be tempted to leave his position at Stoke uh, to come to Sunderland.
0: Did Durban need much persuading to take the job?
1: Well, there were family issues with his daughter's education and one or two natural qualms, which any, I suppose, manager moving to quite a substantial distance um, about the the family relocation. But uh, professionally um, speaking, Alan Durban had always been um, struck by what Brian Clough, I'll use the word mentor at Derby County, what he'd said about the Northeast. He'd also been influenced about um, Welsh International Ivor Old Church, his comments about if you ever get the chance to work in the Northeast, snap it up. And he was excited by the prospect of it's a cliche used with Sunland, but waiting, waking the sleeping giant. And it, he was excited by this this prospect um, professionally what, what he could achieve, what others had either. Failed to do, or hadn't even attempted.
0: At Stoke, Durban had encountered some apathy from the locals towards the side's achievements, but he'd also encounter the same thing at Sunderland. Was this down to his style of football, and if so, what was that style?
1: Well, yes, you, you raise a good point. That was one another another reason which I um, meant to list about his reasons for leaving Stoke and why he was excited by the challenge, and we say. It was because of the, this apathy he had um, detected heart stroke. and he knew he was coming in to a, this hotbed of, of passion. that, that was what it, he was excited by. And it, but he realized at the same time that with this passion came an intensity of the, the spotlight would be always on him, both from supporters and the media. To, to produce, um, well, just, just whatever was going on, either transfer speculation or with results. Now, as far as his reception on with the Sunderland supporters, um, I think later on, this tag of defensive football was, and I don't know whether this is born from that that myth of the famous misquote of when he was in his final season at Stoke, when, when they in the press conference at Highbury, when they'd just been defeated by Arsenal. It's set up with a defensive formation at Arsenal. So the line that he's supposed to have come out with in the press conference at Highbury is, if you want entertainment, go and get a bunch of clowns. But people can't even agree on what the quote is because you get <laughs> other people saying, if, if you want entertainment, go to the circus. So which is it? Is it they are linked, clowns and circus, but which is the quote? So they can't even agree on that. And I think a lot of the ap- apathy, is, uh, as you say, is, is with hindsight with Durban that fans were associated with negative football. But while he was there, I think the fans and the supporters or the knowledgeable ones, at least, which is the majority, realised that he was working in extremely difficult circumstances with a board of directors who appeared unsupportive in releasing the purse strings They had a, been an economic downturn generally in the early 1980s. So things have become tight. I think a good chunk of the supporters appreciated the problems and the difficulties that Alan Durban was working with. And it's the minority who had this association of negative, boring football. I don't believe that was the case. I wasn't bored going to Rock Park. And now, looking back, a lot of the supporters appreciate exactly what they had when they had it.
0: What did the chairman, Tom Cowie, his board, what did they expect from Durban when Durban took the job? And did those expectations tally with Durban's own?
1: I think they expected top flight status to be preserved with the absolute minimum transfer outlay And once the economic downturn had set in, they also expected him to trim down what was admittedly a top-heavy squad and reduce the wage bill. Durban was looking to, I think, achieve, in his first season, achieve safety a little bit earlier than Ken, well, Ken Knighton didn't finish the previous season, but The previous season, Sunderland had survived on the final day of the season. Other results had gone their way. So their 1-0 win at Anfield um, against Liverpool's side, who I think had one eye on preparing for a forthcoming European Cup final against Real Madrid, which isn't to take anything away from Sunderland's achievement of attaining a 1-0 victory there. But other results had gone their way. But Durban's goal, I think, was to achieve safety perhaps a little bit earlier in the final week of the season, and he confidently predicted that in in his uh, first day press conference at at Walker Park. But once that was achieved, his sights were certainly a lot higher. He was looking to achieve something which had only been um, a pipe dream for most Southern supporters in the 70s and 80s, and that would be to finish in the top five or six, whatever it took, to achieve a European qualification.
0: What about the needs and expectations of Sunderland fans? What did they want to see from Alan Durban?
1: What they wanted was to achieve Europe, to win a cup in the first season, probably. But I think uh, a lot of the Sunderland supporters do possess common sense, and uh, do not 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 unrealistic expectations. It's usually it's always the, the noisy man, minority who would, who would never be satisfied. They wouldn't be satisfied with Sunderland finishing the top half of the table, getting to the, I don't know, semi-final of one of the big cup competitions. They they would be yammering on about um, calling for the manager's head. But it is a minority. Unfortunately, as I I mentioned in the book, often the noisy minority gets heard about the, um, the majority. My own view would tally with a sizeable chunk of the Sunderland supporters' outlook. Really, I just wanted to be going those final few weeks of the season anxiety-free and to be safe from relegation, I mean mathematically safe, by about, I don't know, early April, Easter time. That would have been a luxury of which dreams were made
0: of. The 81-82 season, that sees the introduction of three points for a win Meantime, Sunderland have three players, Barry Siddle, uh, Sean Elliott, Barry Siddle, the backup keeper, Sean Elliott and Stan Cummins. They're still out in the States playing in the NASL, which is quite a common arrangement at that time in the top division. But Durban isn't happy about that, is he? Oh, most
1: certainly not. Um, it, it, so it's a major bone of contention. Um, and it's something that he said will not be repeated under his... Uh, jurisdiction in the future he was deprived of the three three of his club's star assets well obviously it was the the ones that the the north american clubs were most interested in taking had sean elliott stan cummins went to seattle sounders and barry siddle vancouver whitecaps i mean obviously there was the cover there for the goalkeeper position with chris turner but sean elliott and and stan cummins were two that would be automatic starters in the in Durban's first lineup, and to be as Durban put it, to be robbed of your uh, vital cogs in the machinery so early on for at least um, five or six matches, probably depending on Seattle Sounders' progress in the NASL playoffs, w- was a big blow. It it, it just illustrated the money over success, if you like, uh, mindset that had dictated the, the powers that be at Roker Park permitting such an arrangement to take place because they, well, they, they prioritised receiving fees for these players to play in America over to, well, to the detriment of Alan Durban's early season prospects of, um, of Sunderland getting off to a good
0: start. In terms of strengthening the side in his first summer at the club, Durban brings in Stoke's Scottish international left-back Ian Monroe, whom Durban had only signed from St in the previous season for Stoke. And elsewhere, I think there are efforts to bring in Lee Chapman from his former club, Stoke, but they come to nothing. But a young Scottish striker, 18-year-old Ali McCoy, does arrive from St Johnston for £400,000. A record for Sunderland. But also, regardless of that, that's big money at the time. Would that transfer fee weigh heavily on McCoist in his two years at Sunderland?
1: He said not. I, I, I don't I don't disbelieve Ali McCoist. He's that type of bubbly personality which the fee wouldn't have sat heavily on his shoulders. But the problem is that when the press start reporting on matches or any mention of Ali McCoist, his name is always going to be prefixed with the word record signing or Scottish hotshot, which is unrealistic because he scored 18 goals with St Johnstone in the Scottish second division, which is the third tier of, of Scottish football. Just describing the Scottish hotshot and record signing, that perhaps subliminally... I don't know if, if McCoy was reading the local press and he might have been one of those people who who didn't keep looking uh, or thought it best not to keep reading the uh, the local paper. You don't know if that subliminally, subconsciously does have an effect on a person, but I would say not. The manager certainly tried to shield him. The supporters realise he's an 18-year-old and I don't think they... I think that the fee was more a reflection of the competition for his signature at the time and his potential. And Durban was looking at this long, this 10-year plan. He was looking at building a team four, as the book says, tomorrow. And, and I don't think the pressure uh, did get them a course. But what did affect his unfair performances was just that transition where he, he remarked that everything was so much quicker. He had to take Doing one touch, what he'd been able to do in three touches, uh, the marking was tighter. And bear in mind, he wasn't even a full-timer at St Johnston. Signing with Sunderland allowed him to hand his notice in uh, at the civil service. Um, he was able to start training full-time for the first time in his life. Obviously, he could take it. The exuberance and fitness of youth, was a, that wasn't a problem. But all these things have to be taken into consideration. It was unrealistic. they expect him to start coming in and banging in the goals um, in, in his first few months. In fact, the, the initial plan was to ease him in gradually. But um, unfortunately, because Sunderland started to struggle and the goals weren't coming from established players, um, McCoist was thrust into the starting role in the Sunderland first team a little sooner than... Alan Durban wished and um, most of the Sunderland supporters got an earlier uh, chance to, to view him in action than they would expected.
0: And McCoy would be making his debut in a new kit that doesn't go down well with Sunderland fans. At the start of the season, the new Lecoq Sportif design is unveiled. Sunderland's famous stripes have been replaced by twin thin red stripes, very spaced out on the shirt. Worse still, the black shorts had been replaced by red. How had the fans reacted to this?
1: The, uh, and, and forgive me for ge- a generalisation. The youthful supporter, they didn't bat an eyelid. It was, it, when, when the announcement was made, in I think in the paper, and, and I know when I, somebody at school said to me, oh, someone had signed a deal with Lecoq Sportif. This was exciting because Tottenham Hotspur just been very prominent with their FA Cup wins. They had been one of the first teams to adopt um, a Lecoq Sportif uh, strip. There were teams on the continent, I think, that used uh, the strip. It had an exciting image. I think it was very appealing. And even when the strip was in that, revealed, uh, again, there was no great... I think the red shorts jarred perhaps more than the shirt. Uh, the shirt still had that proud old-fashioned Sunderland logo sitting proudly in the middle of his shirt. I don't think the shirts were so much of an issue. I, th- I, th- I think the the red, the, red, the candy red sh- shorts looked less appealing, but, but it was the older supporter who I think were, were, was more irked by the um, moving away from the broad red and white uh, stripes However, having said that, if Sunderland had started to tear through the league at a fast rate of knots, winning matches gloriously, um, that would have soon been forgotten.
0: At the start of the 81 82 season, Durban talks of sitting there in 12 months' time with a club in a better position and with a European challenge the following season, a realistic proposition. Had he underestimated the size of the task facing the club?
1: Alan Durban's a very thorough. Professional man. However, I don't think anything could prepare him for the oh, that blaze of intensity in the northeast. He couldn't be expected. He, he, even he, even in his preparedness to, to be confronted by what he was, I think he it did take him slightly aback. I mean, he talks about driving to Roker Park. Knowing he's going to face a press conference, and he's 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 on his drive into work, and he's trying to think. He's trying to think of things to say to because he knows he's going to be asked about the latest transfer speculation or which player is he interested in. He got to a point where I think he's he's trying to make, give give them something um, in the press conference because this isn't is something he wasn't used to. or not the, the intensity almost every single press conference at Roker Park. And also another thing he wasn't used to was that, I, mean, I think if he, if he left a player out of the Stoke City side, whilst that individual player might not be happy, what he was coming up against with at Sunderland was that if he left somebody out, they were immediately banging on his door, asking for an explanation, unhappy about it, where I think there was a more pragmatic... Philosophical approach that had been more pre- prevalent within the Stoke dressing room that they could accept that they might be getting left out of the side for tactical reasons on a short-term basis, or uh, horses for courses for a particular fixture, and uh, there will be less um, unrest or slapping in of transfer requests at um, well, just for being left out of the team relatively. Short duration of time, so there were aspects of the the Sunderland dressing room compared to the Stoke City and the the Shrewsbury Town dressing room before that, which, because Durban, that served as a managerial apprenticeship at uh, Shrewsbury Town, and I think these were issues, things that he uh, were uh, new or unexpected problems.
0: And these are problems he experiences early on with um, several of Sunderland's talented players, including Kevin Arnott and Stan Cummins, neither of whom would last the Durban era. What was the problem there between the manager and the players?
1: With Kevin Arnott and John Hawley, um, he left out the opening fixture at Ipswich Town. It was a hot summer's uh, period at late August. He was looking at the weather. He was looking at the the quality of the opposition. We were aware to the previous season league runners up, uh, who were formidable opposition. for to Ipswich Town, especially at Portman Road, and he made um, one or two tactical decisions. He was going to go with the pace of Alan Brown, so he left John Hawley out. Uh, and Hawley, to be fair, was also on the transfer list. Kevin Arnott was left out because. Durban thought that Sunderland would not be in a position to... They wouldn't be on the front foot or be in a position... Bear in mind, the previous season with Stoke, Durban's team had been beaten 4-0. So he didn't think that Arnott, who was more of a a creative player... Durban wanted Gordon Chisholm in there, who was more of a a, a man-marker type player for the midfield. And he made these two decisions. He explained in front of the whole dressing room why he'd made those decisions, and yet Kevin Arnott immediately put in a written transfer request. And Durban said that he thought Arnott was being hasty. He did. He had no wish to offload Kevin Arnott. He recognised Arnott's talent, and he, he used the example where Brian Clover had left himself, Alan Durban, out of the team early on in the... Uh, one of the Derby County successful seasons, Alan Durban didn't react petulantly, and he ended up being a regular in the in the Derby team and clutching a, a championship-winning medal at the end of the season. He and he used that example to to, to say why he thought Arnold had been hasty. Stan Cummins was a player who he had a not. He and Alan Durban were at loggerheads for much. Of Alan Durban's first two seasons, Stan Cummins wouldn't be, unha- would be unhappy if he was substituted. And then Alan Durbin would have to say, "Well, I took Cummins off because I wanted um, the height of Colin West on for the last twenty minutes." And he was—it seemed as if um, he was having to placate uh, Stan Cummins a lot. There was there was a lot going on in the, in the dressing room. Durban said one or two things after Cummins had left. Which are in the book. Cummins had plenty to say um, whilst he was still at the club with certain certain journalists, and there were headlines in the back pages which Durban wasn't happy about. So the two obviously weren't in harmony, and and, and 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 to compound the matter, there was an administrative error with the um, paperwork in the summer of 1983, which led to Stan Cummins going to our, tri- well not a tribunal, but um, getting the, the the Players Association on his side to, because he had a claim that he was entitled to a free transfer, because the new contract offered to him, it had been botched, and he hadn't been offered equal or improved terms technically, so he was entitled to a free transfer. So all of a sudden, to compound matters, Alan Durban is deprived of some vital transfer funds, which you would have normally anticipated receiving for Cummins, and might have been as high as £100,000 um, on, on a good day. So there's a lot there's a lot going on with the likes of Stan Cummins. Other players would slap in transfer requests during that first season. I think Gary Rowell was one, and then Ian Boyer. Sometimes domestic and trouble settling in the area was cited as reasons, especially by the likes of Ian Boyer. So, so you can't argue with that.
0: Still to come on when shorts were short.
1: Third division Millwall and second division Charlton Athletic spent about twice as much as Sunderland did in the summer of 1982. And then Charlton Athletic not only did that, but once the season was underway, they spent another £324,000 to sign Alan Simmonson from Barcelona. So I think that space volumes Where clubs are that. I mean, smaller clubs in, in the lower divisions were spending that kind of money and that didn't happen at Sunderland.
0: Thank you for downloading When Shorts Were Short. You might be interested in supporting the show's Patreon page. Supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short. Your support for the podcast is appreciated. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. One player that Sunderland miss out on in the summer of '81 is Everton's Bob Latchford, who makes the move to Swansea. And Durban dismissed a move for the player because he felt Latchford was too old. Yet Latchford does well at Swansea. And, and two years later, Durban was trying to bring him to Roker Park. How much of a missed opportunity was that for the club?
1: Well, very much, I would say. And with hindsight, I think, I mean, all, all managers make mistakes. Like, all goalkeepers make mistakes. Some make a lot fewer than others. And Alan Durbin is definitely in that category. But I think with with hindsight, even he realised that, oh, that was a missed opportunity. Because not only was Latchford not the short-term buy that many might have thought, because he retained good fitness. He had this tactical penalty area awareness, which got him into good positions. And he, he was still a potent striker, both scoring goals and providing contributions to, to other players. And this is, I think, would have helped greatly Ali McCoist settle in. McCoist, I think, would have scored more goals. The pressure would have been eased from his back sooner. McCoist's premature departure, which was forced, forced in inverted commas, I'll say, uh, on Durban two years later, that may never have happened if, and again, with the benefit of hindsight, if Latchford had arrived, I think Sunderland would have been more successful in, in Durban's first year and McCoyst, his transition from Scottish second division to English top flight, would have been greatly smoothed.
0: There is young talent at Sunderland coming through, uh, the likes of Nick Pickering, Barry Venison, Colin West. At the same time, Durban is concerned that Sunderland is still missing out on local talent. And from the beginning, he pushed for a shift in the um, recruitment culture so that Sunderland got better at getting the young local talent rather than having to buy overpriced or stopgap solutions. Did that shift in recruitment policy ever happen in his time there?
1: Essentially, no, it didn't. That was the main thrust, uh, that was the overarching uh, goal all the time to the team for tomorrow or the long term. When I say long term, I'm, I'm talking. I'm, he, Alan Derman wasn't saying, well, "Oh, yes, we're, we're, we're going to be devoid of success for ten years." No, he, he was looking for some for some medium-term gains as well. But players were signed. But well, they were they were established first division performers. But they were relatively young, like Mark Proctor, I think was 22. Uh, Paul Bracewell, 21. Lee Chapman was still, I think, under 24. But there was a need, and, and Durban realised that these players had to be helped and assisted, both on the pitch and with um, good good traits in training as well. And that's why he thought that uh, he made moves for Dennis Stewart, Mick Mills. Stewart, that, that thing didn't Get off the ground mainly because of the um John Bond's changed his mind. I wouldn't say once or twice, probably five or six times, um, with with when he was negotiating with uh Durland on various matters. And McMill's turned Sunderland down twice. John Wilde was very interested in joining from West Bromwich Albion as assistant manager, player assistant manager, but um in the end, West Brom wouldn't release him. But Durban did, of course, bring on board um, experience in in very much so in the sense of 82, 83, particularly with Frank Worthington, uh, who was 34 years old, and even though he was five years younger, he was vastly experienced. And that was Leighton James from Swansea City, which was the, I would say, the snip of the decade on a free transfer um, in, in in January '83. So. A very opposite word when dealing with that, Durban, was blend, finding the right blend. And the the lion's share was aimed to be youth and potential and with a good um, peppering of that that experience as well.
0: We'll come to Leighton James later because he really is a good sign-in. When you look at Durban's time at Sunderland, just under three seasons, you look at the captains, I think he starts off with Jeff Clark, he's relieved as team captain, Ian Monroe takes over, I think at some point Ian Atkins, who comes in around 83, 84 and is a very good signing, he's also named captain at one point. The amount of skippers during Durban's short time there, was this instability in terms of captains symptomatic of Durban's struggle to find a leader for the team?
1: Well in one sense no in the sense that um I mean Jeff Clark was retained uh, club captaincy throughout that initial season his form though suffered uh, for, for whatever reason and he was left out he, had, he he was eventually left out of the team so Ian Munro assumed on field duties then late, later on again when Ian Atkins took over as as on field captain Ian Mun- Munro still um, maintained club captaincy for uh, official um, non-playing duties. So there was that, um, there was that stability there. Um, certainly, it, 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 there was no reflection not on that. But what he was, he was struggling, and there's more than one instance of where he, he was looking for unfailed leaders, perhaps not nominally in the sense of you're, you're wearing the captain's armband, but he felt that the young, the young blood that was coming into the team, were not being given that on-field assistance or that degree of on-field leadership that they might um, reasonably have expected from some experienced professionals who, who were there. The team seemed to be struggling, and when I was watching matches from Amplesey and Rugger Park, there seemed to be this passing the book at times where players weren't were wanting to shirk hide rather than take on responsibility. And I think that disappointed Durban. There are quotes where he he says he's disappointed, where there's too much being expected, or there's too much on the young players' shoulders, and they're not getting that on-field help that there should be from experienced pros.
0: Sunderland lose only one of their opening five league games that season, but then from mid-September onwards, they start to struggle. The final weeks of 81 see them lose at home to Crystal Palace in the League Cup. There's only just over 11,000 at Roker. Had such low attendances been seen during the Ken Knighton era?
1: Well, no, but there, there are extenuating circumstances for the drop. Ken Knighton's first full season, Sunderland were going for promotion virtually throughout, and with that came big attendances. Uh, almost automatically with the Roper Park, which has always been the way for decades leading up to to that period when 19 took over. And then we've got the tremendous excitement at Sunderland's long-awaited return, which has seemed, especially when you're young, um, waiting from 1977 to 1980 seems a tremendous long time, and they'd had a couple of close years where they'd missed out and finished in, well, the previous season in 79, they'd finished in fourth position. So there was this excitement of being back in the big time, going to all the, uh, the grounds like White Hart Lane and Anfield and Old Trafford, being, receiving more publicity on Match of the Day, all this excitement. And even when the, the results started to go wrong for Knighton and we were in a relegation battle, there's still that novelty value certainly for the younger supporters, going to, going to the matches and getting to see uh, the big teams where they'd been putting up with, well, the lesser lights in second second division fair for, for a long time, and there was still that, that uh, zest to, 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 for, for, for going to the matches. Now, by the time 81, 82 came around, they had, as I've mentioned before, the economic downturn, perhaps, perhaps money was harder to come by, Perhaps people had to think twice before they paid out money to to attend the matches. And and when when another season of struggle uh, dawned, and I think let's not underestimate the crucial factor that almost all of a sudden, halfway through the season, the transfer rug is pulled from Durban. From thinking he had money to spend, there is now a, a sell-first, buy-later policy inflicted upon him. And we didn't really have any real players, saleable assets, or many, that were, go, were going to generate cash. We would have had to sell the crown jewels in the likes of, let's say, Sean Elliott or even McCoy's to quick return to Rangers. Uh, which was almost out of the question as far as Durban's concerned. And and this was a big blow to supporters because the excitement of a new transfer buy would have ignited the attendances, whether it someone were in the bottom three or not, to to see one or two new faces, to see Jimmy Nickel, who he came in on loan, and Durban was fully expecting to complete the £225,000, which is really... A very reasonable fee for a player of a Nicholas quality and calibre. And he wasn't able to complete that deal. He wasn't able to match the wages of uh, Rhea Kennedy from Liverpool. And he wasn't even able to... Well, he, he didn't feel able to complete the £50,000 move for England international the of Watson, bring him back to Rotter Park, which would, would have been a very popular move. £50,000. And the wages were reasonable. But then Southampton said, oh, we want an extra 20000 after after Watson's completed. Ex, I don't know if it was 20 appearances for the club or something like that. And Derwin then had a balance. Right, I can afford Dave Watson. However, if I go ahead with a deal, that means come transfer deadline in March, I won't have at my disposal another low to moderate fee. I'll have, I'll have nothing left in the kitty. And, and that's why he had to pull out, or he felt he had to pull out. The Summers just didn't wheel. But if a couple of these men who, who Derwin linked, was linked with in that mid part of the 81-82 season had arrived, it would have automatically boosted attendances. It would have generated the excitement. But the, the supporters had seen that cruelly knocked on the head.
0: On the pitch, the club is struggling. Off the pitch, things are not very stable. Tell us about Tom Cowie's chairmanship of the club. Tell us about the opposition to Tom Cowie's chairmanship of the club and if there was opposition, from whom and what were the issues they had with the chairman?
1: Well, the the issues supporters had were when someone promoted, there was a hike in admission fee. I, I, from memory can tell you what, that the um, price of a seat, matchday seat, this isn't nothing to do with season tickets, matchday seat went from £3 to £4.50, um, which is, percentage-wise, is, is quite a hike. And, and the North East, the industry was shipbuilding and mining and, um, well, steelworks hadn't um, quite bitten in at that point, 80, 80, but these these were all all factors. And then the again on a on a on a monetary theme, and this was this wasn't the crux of the matter. Knighton wasn't backed substantially in the summer of of coming up in, uh, to to strengthen for top flight football. And then when Durban took over, I mean I worked it out that okay, yes, a record fee granted to sign. McCoy's McCoyst, for the, the precise sum was £355,000, and then £150,000 spent on Ian Monroe. So add those two together, we've got just a share over £500,000. But Durban raked in £210,000 from selling Joe Bolton, and then in bits and pieces, Sam Allardyce, Ian Boyer, John Hawley, Joe Hinnigan, Steve Whitworth, Barry Dunn bit by bit, he was chipping away. Not only was he chipping away at the at the, at the net outlay, money was coming in for, in transfer fees, and, and the wage bill, the squad was being trimmed, the wage bill was reducing, and I worked it out that Durban raked in more than £400,000 from transfers coming in, and then he had on top of that, he's reduced the wage bill. This was a big uh, sticking point with the Southern supporters, not the managers, not being backed with transfer cash. And then to, to further answer your question, from a, a non, well, if I term it non-supporter angle, um, shareholders, there were, there, were, there were challenges in the boardroom with um, so-called rebel shareholders were calling for extraordinary uh, general meetings to try and um, push their uh,
0: issues. The principal rebel shareholder, this is Barry Beatty, isn't he? And uh, he serves, I think after 25 games, Sunderland find themselves second from bottom and Beatty disturbed at the club's position. He serves formal notice for an EGM. He's calling the chairman a a disaster. How does that EGM go? And at this stage, does Beatty have enough backing to push Tom Cowie out?
1: At that point, uh, no, he doesn't. It's it's more vocal um, and and uh, he, he said he had the contacts businessmen who would come on board with him who I mean if we go, if we talk about the January early February '82 he says that he had the the backing of businessmen who would have enabled the, the buying of Dave Watson and Ray Kennedy and Jimmy Nichol he he makes that claim, which is very uh, appealing to, for, for Southern supporters to hear that there's, there's somebody saying they'll they'll put their, their money where their mouth is, so to speak. But the first, whilst it wasn't an extraordinary annual general meeting, the first annual general meeting was at a most inopportune time um, for Durban in November '81 because they'd just been beaten 5-1 at home by Manchester United in the league and then knocked out by second division of the league cup by second division. Crystal Palace at home, and the day after, he's got the annual general meeting, which he's got to. um, Well, he he didn't personally have to attend, but it wasn't ideal timing. With with regards to the cause for a a real serious challenge to leverage being applied uh, and people getting into the boardroom themselves, it was more at the start of the '83-'84 season. Uh, Up to that point, it had been it had been more a vocal. Presence, um, a disturbing vocal presence.
0: Before we come to the climax of that first season under Durban of 81 82, I just want to take you back to the Ian Boyer situation because that was a big sign in for the club at the start of 81. He gets injured, I think, early on. He's arrived for a substantial fee. He returns to Forest, I think, for a fraction of that fee. And it's one of the strangest moves, I think, of that decade. Here's a man, a double European Cup winner and League champion, deemed surplus to requirements, perhaps by Forest, And then a year later, he's back at Forest and he captains them for a further five seasons. It doesn't make much sense. Was Boyer's trouble at Sunderland down to a failure to settle down in the area? Was he one of those players who just couldn't settle in the Northeast? Or were his issues on the football pitch itself? Well, I'm going to use words
1: that were attributed to them at the time and well, and well uh, documented. Probably Sunderland, different factions of Sunderland supporters might have varying opinions. But the official reason, I mean, when Durban re- revealed that Boyer had asked for a transfer, he said that Boyer had cited, well, domestic issue in the fact that he, he couldn't, he was having problems settling in the area. And once a player says that, nobody can contest it. You've just got to take the player at their word. So there was that aspect with with, with Ian Boyer. You can't really dispute that. The feeling was that Knighton may have been, because when Knighton bought Boyer in January 81, Sunderland were starting to struggle. And perhaps Brian Clough was, shall we say, canny, exploited that to some extent. There was an inflated fee, but at the time, when the when the back the local back pages said was, and the, and the local even news on TV said we'll signed Ian Boyer, 29 years old, 250,000 pounds. It didn't seem unreasonable. The unfortunately the 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 economy the downturn in '81 that has badly affected um, the the situation as well. But once a player said what well, the, the feeling was, some of the press said reckoned. And whether they'd picked this up from a, an inside quote, but they felt that Boyer had, to use their expression, opted out. He'd opted out of a relegation fight. Didn't have the stomach for a relegation fight. But that was their words. There's, there's probably an argument to be made on both sides.
0: It all comes down to the final game for Sunderland that season. They're at home to a Manchester City team who, after topping the table at the end of the year, have been in free fall. A goal from Mick Buckley gives Sunderland three points. They just avoid the drop. At this stage, what needed to happen for Durban and Sunderland to kick on the following season?
1: Durban, uh, to be backed, to back Alan Durban's judgment in the transfer market because Alan Durban's philosophy was quality over quantity. Now, this is something that completely went out of the window in subsequent in the subsequent years. And led to Sunderland falling into the third division because they went with quantity um, over, over quality. And I mean, I've mentioned already the failure the back Knight the to back Mick Robinson, and whether this was because it was £500,000 on a single player. But uh, six months later, they released the purse strings for Knighton to sign Boyer and Ritchie, whether it was because they're getting two players and they felt they're getting more value for money, but you know. If you want quality, you've got to pay for it sometimes. And Durban would have bought quality. He would have bought players that Sunland would not have lost money had they failed to settle. They were good, sound, medium to long-term investments. Sunland would have got their money back, and Durban needed to be backed um, with his transfer judgement. And I recently was looking at the, the the summer transfer spending listed of other clubs in the summer of eighty-two, of prominent transfer deals. And it's, 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 uh, it speaks volumes that third division Millwall and second division Charlton Athletic spent about twice as much as Sunderland did in the summer of 1982. And then Charlton Athletic not only did that, but once the season was underway, they spent another £324,000 to sign Alan Simmonson from Barcelona. So I think that speaks volumes. What clubs are that? I mean, smaller clubs in in the lower divisions were spending that kind of money, and that didn't happen at Sunderland.
0: Thank you to David Snowden. In part two, we look at the final stretch of Alan Durbin's time as Sunderland manager, during which the likes of Frank Worthington and Leighton James arrive at Roker Park. David can be followed on Twitter at DRSnowden, Dr. Snowden, to keep it simple. And Give Us Tomorrow Now is published by Pitch Publishing and is available via the Pitch website, Amazon and All Good Bookshops. There'll be links in the show notes. As always, please do rate and review When Shorts Were Short on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the podcast provider you use for subscribing. Apple Podcasts remains the all-important way for any show to grow. Thank you all for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at shorts were short and facebook.com forward slash shortswashort. If you want to join the group page on there, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me shorts were short at 1607 westeggcom All my work can be found at com. The podcast can be supported at patreon.com forward slash shortswashort. Sign up for your season ticket there. Lots of content on the way. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it.